0: The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So, hey, let's jump in. We're in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first two verses, right? And I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to read them again, but, but listen, these names probably don't mean much to you. Right, uh, Pontius Pilate. You probably heard of this guy if you're familiar with the Bible. If you're not, you haven't heard of him, right? But but why do, why are they here? What do they represent? And I think here, there's a couple of things they represent. One, it's a timestamp. We know exactly from this moment the 15th year of the reign of Caesar, right? Or yeah, Tiberius Caesar. That's a timestamp. So why does that matter? Because where we left off, we left Jesus in the temple. So did his parents, right? And he was 12. And now it's 18 years have passed, okay? And so Jesus would be 30, and and the beginning of the ministry is about to begin. That's why it matters. But also, I want you to know, these names represent political and religious wickedness. Like, these names are not good names. Uh, if, If it were of our time, we would be talking about some just great evil people and when we would hear those names we'd be reminded of that darkness as a matter of fact four of these leaders will actually have direct role in Jesus's death right and 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 it's not just political he throws Ananias and and uh, Caiaphas in there why because they don't love God they don't love God and so this is a bleak picture when Jesus is about to begin his ministry here on earth Uh, it's a fresh reminder by the way That God never forgets his people. No matter how dark life gets, you should never think God has left me. If you're in Christ, he can't can't leave you. He he actually dwells in you, right? There is no separating, right? You may wander from him, but you can't really wander from him. He'll continue to work in your heart to draw you back. And so this dark moment, guess what? The gospel is going to shine bright, It's going to shine bright. But that's the stage and that's the scene that we're about to to enter in on. Notice the most important words in this section. It's the word of God came to John. It's so important that you understand this. God's about to do something that no one in all of redemptive history up to this point would ever really imagine. They had little pictures. They had little glimpses. They were trying to understand, but they didn't understand that Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Christ was coming to live the perfect life and to die the death. We say these words all the time. They thought King was coming to take over Rome and to reestablish Israel. But, but actually God has something way greater than that, a greater freedom than what they were actually hoping. But, but he sends a prophet to speak directly for him. Remember, it's, it's, it's always about the message, not primarily the messenger that's important. And so he sends John the baptizer. He doesn't send a slick scribe. He sends a wild man, right? Now you you don't necessarily get that maybe from this text. You get some of it, but let me give you a little description that Matthew gives in Matthew 3, 4. He says, now John, he's talking to John the baptizer, wore a garment of camel's hair. You know, somewhere right now there's a hipster probably wearing that, and it's pretty cool. But this was, this is, there's a reason he says camel hair. Why? Because it points back to the prophets of old. He also has a leather belt around his waist, and listen to his diet. His food was locust and wild honey. He, he's, he's in the wilderness. Don't think woods. He's desert. He's, he's been removed. He's filled with the Spirit. If you remember, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he's waiting. He has one job. He has one message. Listen to this man's message, by the way. In Luke 3, 3, it says, "...and he went into all the region around the Jordan," all right? the Jordan River, "...proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin." Everywhere John went, he's like a broken record, right? He's got one message. What's the message? What's the message? Repent. Repent, right? And we hear that word, and some of you hear that word, and it depends on your background what that even means. Some of you may not even know what it means. So what does the word repent mean? Well, here's here's point one. If you have your map, you'll see that right in the middle there. Repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a sorrow over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life, and a turning towards God, honoring way of life. Could more be said? Sure. Um, Could less be said? I don't know. I I tried to wordsmith the sentence, but I think that's a really good description of repentance. So, so John, listen, he, he preaches, and, and what's he preaching? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So in the power of the Spirit, John's out proclaiming God's plan to deliver Israel. Now baptism, just real quick, because we're not going to talk a ton about that. By the way, as we go forward in Luke, just know there's going to be things left on the table because the themes are going to come back, and we're not going to cover every little detail every Sunday. Otherwise, we're going to be here all day, okay? But baptism in this sense right now was when people would come confessing and repenting of their sins, and then they would be submerged into water, okay? And, and, and particularly here, it's in the Jordan River, and it was symbolizing your sins being washed away right? But, but here's the deal. If I've seen the Jordan River, it's kind of nasty. It's not washing anything away, really. It, it symbolizes, right? We used to baptize people in the Allegheny River, and I'm like, I hope they don't have open sores. They're going to die. And we're going to find out if they love Jesus because, well, they're about to meet him, right? <laughs> Seriously, if you had open sores, you'd get MRSA. It's a, that's a nasty river. And there we are, Duncan folks, Okay. But but here's the deal: this is an external action displaying a possible internal reality. Okay? This matters, and, and as we continue, you'll see that. But it was all to fulfill the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5, which, by the way, Luke adds right here in chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. I'm going to read it again. I want you to listen to the words. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be brought down, hills shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. Listen to this phrase, and all flesh, that means all humans, shall see the salvation of God. See, see, the language used here is probably lost in our culture a little bit. However, it really reflects a widespread custom that was embraced at that time. So if you had a king or a ruler who was coming to Greensburg, right? And let's pretend we don't have roads right now. We got mountains and all these different things. You don't want the king coming in and having to go down the valleys and possibly get stuck and have to go around three days around the big boulder and all these different things. So if you wanted to meet the king, guess what you needed to do? You needed to prepare a wide and smooth road or he wasn't coming okay so they would level these things out and they would work to get it done so that when the king would come in with the entourage you could actually celebrate the king's arrival okay so that was that was very custom in that time he's not talking about clearing out some some gravel right what's he talking about clearing out your heart preparing the heart for the king and this is what john's mission is his mission is to prepare the way of the lord and so Notice, I mean, just notice some of these things. He's telling people to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah, okay? Repentance invites and and essentially makes room for the fullness of God. He's saying, get ready for your king. People, prepare, be ready. He's telling them, get your heart warmed up to the Lord. But guess what that takes? It takes a miracle, which is why we need to continue. Listen to his words, by the way. So just imagine them. Camel hair, leather belt. Honey and locust, probably sticking out of his beard. I always imagine with a beard. I don't know why. He's right? just dripping off his chin. He comes out of the wilderness. He's telling everyone everywhere to repent. And then listen to this wild man, what he says. He said, therefore, verse 7 of Luke chapter 3, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, right, right, by him, they're coming. Just imagine, they're all coming in droves. They heard about the wild man who's in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. And here they come. And listen to how he greets them. You brood of vipers. (laughs) Imagine that welcome at church. You all show up. You brood of vipers. How we doing? He's not a seeker sensitive preacher. He says, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, bear fruits in keeping with Repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Pause. Can't get into all the details. But but at this time, the nation of Israel, Jewish folks, they believe Messiah is just for them. Even though all throughout their Bible, which would have been the Old Testament, over and over and over, God tells them, you will be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. Okay? Here's the problem. They thought this was about family lineage more than devotion and love to God. So it was all about rules. It was all about this. And so he's saying, listen, don't come to me telling me that you're Abraham's father because you might not actually be true spiritual Abraham's father because it's way more than a bloodline. What you need is the blood of Christ. Now, they don't know that yet. But he's saying, don't lean on your religious activity. You better prepare your hearts. You better bear fruit. And so he continues on. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, even now, listen, the ax is laid at the root of the trees, not the branches, not, not even the center part. He says, at the root. He said, I'm gonna, he's going to cut it down. No more. We, Jesus is about to get serious here. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and, listen, thrown into the fire. That's his message. And if you're like, well, that's pretty intense, then you're paying attention. Then you're paying attention. John's not a seeker-sensitive preacher who's full of sugar and spice and everything nice. It's not his goal. It's not his aim. What's his aim? To magnify Christ, to prepare a way for the Lord, and to, to do everything he can within his limited power to set the stage for the one who has come to take the stage. And that's King Jesus. See, John's the servant who has been made for the arrival of the greater king. He's preparing the road. He's preparing the way. He's doing everything he can to smooth it out, let's say spiritually speaking. By the way, just side note, seems clear that jobs require different tools, right? Um, some might hear this message from John and say, wow, he's not very loving. No, he's actually very loving. Sometimes to clear a yard, you need a rake. There's other times you need a jackhammer. And it looks like here, there's some dynamite needed. But what's the point? Well, the point is, he actually cares about their soul more than their temporal comfort in tickling their ears. He's saying there is a wrath that is coming. Get ready. Right? Wouldn't it be nice that if you knew the, the, the wrath of God was coming upon a city and you sat idly by and said, well, I'd love to tell them this news, but man, I really just don't want to offend them because you know Susie makes a good apple pie. She might not make that for me anymore. No, John, John's got one aim. He's got one audience. That audience is King Jesus. And he's not trying to be offensive, but the message of the gospel is offensive. He's saying, you are sinners. John, by the way, was a sinner. John needed the same grace that he's proclaiming. And part of grace is repentance, because repentance is a gift. And he's telling them, get ready. Uh, By the way, fun little story. Uh, I knew a guy named Dr. Pober. If any of you know him well then, he was a wild man. He reminded me of John the Baptist. He's a Jewish fellow too. Uh, he, he was a professor at IUP, but he was also a doctor. And he worked, He basically owned a methadone clinic. Okay, So his clientele was pretty interesting. But he also just did some general care within the little town of Shalakta. And my wife worked in an office that was connected to his office. Not for him, though. And I remember sitting there one night, waiting for my wife to get done with work, and I hear him. And he's in his office, and there's very thin walls, and he says, I don't know what you want me to do. You're fat. You don't listen to me. You're going to die. I have no magic pill for you. If you don't listen to the instruction I have, you you will die. I was like, "Oh, that's awkward." Right? Because everybody was just was like, "And we're in a different office. We're in a chiropractic office." It's like he's wound up. I thought, man, that that's tough love. That's tough love. I know Doctor Pober, and now he's 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 dead now, but the man did love his clients. Was his methods a little unorthodox? For today's standards, for sure. But I don't know what happened with the fella or the lady that he was meeting with. But my guess is they felt the need to change some things if they wanted to leave or live, right? They definitely wanted to leave. Uh, (laughs) Listen, in the same way, John is giving a grave warning to the sons of snake. That's what brood of vipers, sons of snake. Uh, that, that language wouldn't be lost on Jewish folks, man, especially when you think about Genesis 3. Um, he's saying you need a spiritual change because your daddy is the devil. And you act just like your daddy. You're a brood of vipers. You, you don't need to just clean it up. We're not talking about taking a dip in the Jordan River. You need... To change, you need a heart transplant. And guess what? In one sense, they can't do it, which I'm getting ahead of myself. But but here's what he's telling them: they need to repent of their religion. (laughs) Which is really interesting to think about, by the way. Because most of the time, when we think about repentance of sin, we always like think of, you know, punching poppies and you know, abusing women and children and all these horrible sins. Hitler definitely needs to repent. He's saying they need to repent of their goodness. He, you need to repent of doing religious things thinking that you somehow are impressing God. And he's just like, ho oh, oh, ho, look at you keeping the Sabbath. Wow, so impressed. Can't wait to bring you into this family. He's saying, you need to repent of your religion. Do they need to repent of their irreligion? Absolutely. But he's saying, you sons of snakes, you're claiming to be Abraham's children. You're not acting like Abraham's children. Therefore, you need to repent. Oh, and, and they hear it. Trust me, they're not excited for that message. And if they are, it's only because God's at work in their life. He's saying, if you want to escape the coming wrath, then you need to bear fruit with repentance. By the way, does this mean that we need to do something in order to be saved? Answer? good job good job some of you weren't real sure and that's okay keep coming no no there's nothing you can do gosh how people hate that message because they just want to do a little something can't jesus do 99 and i do one nope no nope. you can't do anything you according to the bible are spiritually dead Did you, have you ever hung around dead people don't answer that because if you do we're going to call the cops But if you did, you would know they don't do anything except bloat and stink. For real, and decay, right? That's you before the Lord, unless the Lord intervenes. What can you do? Nothing. You're helpless. You need the Lord to step in and intervene and make you alive, to cause your heart to love him. Why? Because your heart doesn't love him. Mine does. It has ever since I was a kid. Wrong wrong. You may not remember a time your heart didn't love him, but there was a time you little rebel were rebelling against God, wanting nothing to do with him or his ways. And if you don't remember it, well then praise God for that wonderful testimony of God's grace coming to meet you when you were a young kid. Praise God. But you didn't do that. And you'd be foolish to think you did. What he's saying is you need to repent of trying to do things to make God love you. Because you can't. Okay, so he wants to make sure they understand that if they're repentance, he, he's saying, there's a way to do religious things that are fake. That's why he says bear fruit, okay? We don't bear fruit in order to be saved. Fruit is, is a proof of salvation, right? And it really matters. He's saying, if you're fruitless, you said you've been children of Abraham for 80 years, 60 years, 50 years, and your life doesn't show love for God and love for other people. It's fake. It's fake fruit. You ever go to a, uh, you know, a furniture store and they, got the, they, they try to make the scene, set the scenes. They got the little bowl and they got the fake fruit. And it, but it looks pretty real. Some of this stuff's amazing. I almost bit a fake fruit one day when I was buying a couch because I thought it was a real apple. It wasn't real, but it really looked real. Okay, that's, He's saying that's religion in front of God. It's plastic. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's nothing sweet about it. It's fake. It's fake. Okay. Why does this matter? Because that won't save you. What the Jews were attempting to do, and what some of you probably attempt to do, is what's called outside-in religion. i got to clean myself up. i got to do things in order to make God love me. Wrong. That's fake. It's not real. It will not save you to do that. You may look real. Just like that apple on that table looked real to me. You might fool lots of people, but you do not fool God. You do not fool God with your church attendance, even with your Bible reading plans, and you're reading the Bible frontwards and backwards every year, and you get all the badges, and everyone says, wow, he's so smart. Intellect does not save you. It doesn't save you. It does, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Okay, so what is fake repentance? Good question, point two. Fake repentance is concerned about self and escaping consequences of sin. You know, we've all been guilty of this, by the way. All, all too often, we present repentance as a call to clean up our lives. Well, it is a little bit of that, but it's that's boy, that's very incomplete. It's not a real biblical thought. We're going to keep working repentance. You know, we, we, we do good to make up for the bad. That's, that's not a biblical concept. That's karma. That's all sorts of things. We try to even the scale, right? I mean, I've been, a, I've been a pretty good person most of my life, right? I mean, I've tried to do my best. None of that works. And, and you want to know what that sounds like within a home most often? I'll tell you. Okay, so I'm, you might say things like, I'm, I'm not going to blow up at my kids anymore. I promise right? I'm not going to look at porn ever again, I promise. I'm never going to cheat on my hours at work again, I promise. I'm going to stop talking poorly about my neighbor behind their back, I promise. None of that is repentance. It's not repentance at all. That kind of repentance is so dangerous, by the way. By the way, when I say repentance there, I should say fake repentance is so dangerous. And by the way, so many churches are filled with people like that, So many, they have have no desire towards the things of God. But boy, do they look prim and proper. So do Mormons. I don't say that to be ignorant. I've met some Mormons and they're outdoing me in like exterior behavior. They're like rocking it. I'm like, man, that's pretty amazing. Are they saved? No, they're not. Do they love God? No. Do they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them? Let's say as a whole, no, they don't. They don't. But their behavior looks pretty good, which is why repentance is so much more than that. So much more. It might not be less than that, but it's definitely more than that. What might it look like to be a nominal Christian doing fake repentance? Well, let let me give you some ideas of what that might look like. I'm excited about heaven, but really bored by Christians and the church and the things of God. Right? That might might hurt. Okay. Thinks heaven will be great whether Jesus is there or not, because at least I get to go see Fluffy and Grandma. Maybe. Jesus is my homeboy, but I didn't sign up for the rest of this stuff. You know, obedience, discipleship, serving, suffering. Mm, No thanks. Can't tell the difference of obedience motivated by love or seeking to gain love. You get the man, get that. Get that. Some people say, oh, God, i clean myself up so God will love me. You don't understand repentance if that's where you're at. It's okay to be there, but you need to have your mind changed. You need to think about what's being said there. Is bothered by other people's sin more than their own? It's always walking around pointing out everybody else's faults instead of your own hypocrisy and self-righteousness. I got an idea. Look in the Bible and that'd be a good mirror for your own soul and say, yeah, I definitely don't love the Lord or other people near as much as I love me, right? Okay, you need to repent. Holds grace cheap and their own comfort very costly. This is all signs of fake repentance. Repentance that transforms nothing, listen, is worth nothing because it is nothing oh, that seems heavy. Good. Because repentance isn't primarily a feeling. It's not even an intellectual thought. It's not even behavioral modification, although it might include all of those. And, and here's why it's the problem. Because you can clean up your behavior in one area and still not love God. You might never yell at your kids again. Good job. I think that's a good thing. But this doesn't mean you've repented because the heart's still the problem. Think about dandelions right? Who likes dandelions? If my, okay, good. My wife, she's like, why do they call them weed? It looks like, such like a flower. They're so pretty, right? If they were a flower, everybody would be trying to grow them and it wouldn't work. But here's the deal. If you don't like dandelions, like all my neighbors where I used to live, they hated dandelions. I made up for it though, because I would not pay to get my yard sprayed with chemicals. And they wanted to, but anyway, that's a side note. They hated dandelions, so they got their yards treated. I never did, because it was a waste of money for me. And so what I would do is I would mow. And when I was done mowing, guess what? I had no dandelions that were visible. And they were like, man, his yard looks pretty nice today. But guess what? Tomorrow came. Sometimes not even tomorrow. The afternoon. And there they are. These little golden balls in my yard. And, and they're shining through again. That's what it looks like to live a life of fake repentance. Your yard looks clean for a minute. But you didn't get to the root And so the problem's still there. And it might not come out on your kids, but it's going to come out on someone because the fundamental problem is still there. You did not get to it. That's fake repentance. Religion's all about me, not all about Jesus. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And this world has enough of that. God, may we not be a people like that. And we need much help for that. Well, ch- keep going. John's spirit-filled preaching has certainly put some fear into the hearts of his listeners. Let's pick it back up in verse 10 and look at verse 10 through 14 of Luke 3. And the crowds asked him, <sighs> <sighs> Remember, axe laid at the root. Pretty heavy stuff. Brood of vipers. That's where we're, we're all in that realm right now. And they said, well, what then should we do? Preacher man, honey dripping off your... Beard, locusts sticking out your teeth. What do we do? And he answered them. He, he says this to the crowds. He said, whoever has two tunics, think long underwear, uh, is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him. He said, teacher, what, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, probably a better word there would be actually police officer for our culture. Okay, Police officers show up and say, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Don't be beating up all the drug addicts and taking half the money and just turning in half the bust. Notice the crowd, the tax collectors and the soldiers all want to know what then shall we do? And what does he actually say? Well, he gives different answers, but the answer is repent. Because that's all picture of what repentance would look like. See, so point three, real repentance is not about a change in behavior. Instead, it's about a change in relationship that leads to transformed behavior. See what I mean? Like, if I just finished the sentence, repentance, real repentance is not about change of behavior, period. That'd be a terrible sentence and it wouldn't teach what the Bible teaches. It's, It's so important that we understand, though, what needs to happen is a change in relationship between me and God and that's what brings forth changed behavior because that's what it means to be born again. I go from an enemy of God to a child of God and now I want to look like my father in heaven. Who did that? He did that. That's a miracle of grace, right? So so repentance, repenting means essentially exchanging idols for God. That's really what it means. I thought long and hard, what what is repentance? It's, It's saying, I think this is where life is And I know it's not where life is because Christ tells me that he is life, that he's come to give me life, and I'm going to turn from trusting in myself, trusting in my power, trusting in my money, trusting in my two tunics and some food, trusting in all these things because those things are not life. I'm going to quit trying to be God. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm done living my life my way, and I'm not going to just ask Jesus to come into my life and bless my life when I want nothing to do with Him. It's not repentance. That, my friend, is religion. It's listen. Repentance is all about new worship. It's not complicated. Oh, how we like to make it complicated. Israel, you, me, we have a worship problem. Until Jesus opens our eyes to see him and see he's worthy of worship. This isn't confusing. We love creation more than we love creator. We love the gifts more than the giver. We love stuff, (laughs) right? Oh, if I just had this, you fill in this, then I'd be happy. I remember as a young man thinking that all the time. Man, if I was just done with school, I'd be happy. I was done with school. Man, if I just had a job, then I'd be happy. I had a job. Man, if I just made more money, I made more money, I'd be happy. None of it worked. It's back to Ecclesiastes. It's back to trying to shove stuff into a God-shaped hole saying this doesn't work. It works for a season, but guess what? It will end up being bitter in your heart. If you think you need a spouse in order to be happy, talk to some married folks. I'm not even trying to be rude, man. I love my wife. I delight in my wife. But my wife makes a horrible God. And if you think she makes a horrible one, get to know me. I make a horrible God. So if I need my wife to perform and to do all the things in order for me to be happy, I'm worshiping at the wrong idol. She can't hold that weight. She can't. She's not meant to hold that weight. I'm sinning against my wife and my God by putting her in that position because when she fails me, guess what? I'll go from adoring her and loving her when she gives me all my little felt needs and tells me how great I am and makes me wonderful meals. And she does those things, by the way. But when she fails, she'll come right down off that pedestal and I will will begin to demonize her because she didn't do the magic I needed her to do. Well, that ain't her job. She ain't my God. Now I'm using me and my wife in an example, but can I just tell you right now? You all do that. You don't know me. I don't know you. But I know what the Bible says about you, and you do that. You all do that. We got to exchange our worship. We got to. I got to exchange my worship. Man, if I need my kids to perform for me to be able to be happy, right, then something's out of whack with my heart. Is it good to want my daughter to perform and to be good and to love the Lord? Sure, but if she don't give me that and now I start to punish her, I got the problem. I got a problem. I need to repent. See, before it's a change in behavior, it must be a change in worship. Otherwise, it's religion. It means exchanging our idols for Jesus who is real treasure. <laughs> He's real treasure. He's real life. He's substance. Everything else is shadows. It's shifty. You got it. You don't got it. It's gone. He's real. See, I'm using the word treasure here very specifically here because I want you to notice all the three prescriptions of advice have to do with money and possessions. When he talks to the crowd, when he talks to the soldiers, when he talks to the tax collectors, look at it. Private citizens, let's call them the crowds. What are they to do? Share with others. Share with others, right? Tax collectors, what are they to not do? Not take more than what is proper. Soldiers, police officers, what are they to do? They're not to extort money and to be content with their wages. So you don't miss this. John is not addressing people who have tons of possessions. That'd be a mistake to think that, right? Anyone who has two pair of long underwear. All right. Do what? Share. Oh, I got two. Share. You got, you got an extra. Share. By the way, we're doing a coat drive. You got... No, that would be wrong. <laughs> you can have two coats, by the way. You really can. If you got 47, you might have a problem, okay? But that's something you need to work out with the Lord. He, he, he's saying you got to give in proportion, right? He... he, he He doesn't expect that, actually. He doesn't expect that they give in proportion. He's saying, be generous. He's saying, be generous, right? Because listen, if they can't give away their long underwear, they don't have long underwear. Long underwear has them. You, You picking up what I'm laying down? Pay attention. Seriously. If they can't give it away, then it's got them. They don't got it right? Or if you, you don't pick up that, then maybe you'll listen to my homeboy, Tyler Durden from Fight Club. Great movie. Don't watch it if you're conscious. You know. Okay, easy. What's he say? The things you used to own, now they own you. Oh man, does that preach in a world of consumerism in America? Right? Oh, our heart loves these things. Our heart loves these things. By the way, if you will humble yourself, by God's grace, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the things of this world that you love in disproportion to the love of Christ throughout the gospel of Luke. He will be kind to answer that prayer. I believe that. I believe that. He will clear the stage. And is it sometimes uncomfortable? It's always uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable. Is it good? It's always good. It's always good. So question, just real briefly, are you generous with your possessions? That's a question you should ask. Are you willing to share your home? Are you willing to share your cars? Thank you, Levi and Bridget. Always giving me a car when I need one, when I had one. Uh, and other people did too. Um, are, are you willing to share your clothing? Most people don't want your clothing because we just have so much of it. We, we have closets full of it. We have bins full of it. We won't wear it ever again, and it sits in our basement and rots. Are you willing to share your food with other people? And are you willing to do it joyfully? I think that matters. See, because otherwise it's just, it's just, it's just religion again. Well, I'm going to give away my clothes today. If it isn't from a heart of loving God and Him convicting you that, yeah, I have too many things and I want to be generous with it, you're just doing things again to get love and you still don't understand the gospel. You still don't understand. So so here's the deal. Listen, are you generous with your possessions is the question. Do you regularly and sacrificially give to the work of the Lord? Oh, I knew it. We're a year in. Finally, here comes the money pitch, right? I, I, I just know I, I was you. I sat in church and thought the same things many times. Here it is. Took him a year. He just wants my money. Keep, keep your money. For real. I, you think I get it? Like at the end of the day, here you go, Pastor Scott. And they just throw it up in the air for me. Keep your money. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you can't go to another church and give, then the church isn't the problem. You're the problem. Your heart's the problem. That's what needs to change. So if you're like, I don't know if I can trust Kevin and Scott with my money that God's given me to steward. I'm fine with that. I'm a little like, why? We should talk about that. <laughs> but I'm okay with it. But then what I would say is, then you got to go find a church where you can trust them and give. Why? For your heart. For your heart. I'm, I will Trust me, we're coming back to this. Why? Because you're going to talk about money. No, because Jesus is going to talk a lot about money. And so I guess your problem is really with him, not me. By the way, I was a greedy bugger. (laughs) I used to tip the preacher all the time. I'd throw him a five spot. They'd pass the plate back then. And that was my offering, five spot. I used to give waiters and waitresses more. That was my offering. There you go. Why? Because I love money. And it took a work of the spirit. I'm talking as a a born-again man it took a work of the Spirit for me to open up my white knuckled grip towards all the treasure I loved and my wife was a big instrument of that because she used to go home each Sunday and cry because we wouldn't be generous with God, with what God gave us and I would say it's fine it's fine two years into that church the Lord did a profound work in my heart why I really actually believe because my wife was praying almost every day, daily, for that transformation. And I can stand here right now and tell you I'm free of the love of money. Why? Because you're amazing, though? Because God's amazing. Because if it was left to me, I'd still love it. Still love it. You you need a house? Come hang out at mine. need a car? I got two now. Thank you, Lord. Uh, For real. You need time? I'll give you time. Why? Because none of those things are my God. Do I still go towards idols? Sure I do. That's why I got to keep on cleaning out the stage by God's grace. So, you know, you know, why, you know why generosity is important, by the way? I'm going to tell you why. It's a real biblical concept. It's, it's important because here's the deal. Those who are indwelt with the spirit of Christ are generous because the gospel is all about generosity. It's all about generosity. Jesus gave himself for us on the cross to save us. Why? Because he owed us. He didn't owe us anything. It's all just a gift of grace. And he willingly, sacrificially gave himself. Well, guess what? Those who are filled with the spirit of Christ, guess what they ought to be willing to do? Willing to lay down their lives in glad submission and sacrifice to King Jesus. Why? So he'll love you? No, because he does. Boy, and if you get the difference there, man, you've just understood the gospel in a very profound way. You really have. And that's a gift of the Spirit, too. So everything we're talking about is outside, not, not outside in religion, but inside out. See the difference? We're talking heart transformation. Okay, let's keep going. Luke 3, 15 through 20. So, as the people were in expectation, all of them were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So now they're like, Woo, holy preacher, man, this might be the Messiah. That's what they're starting to think. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Messiah, King, John might be him. And notice what John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, who is mightier than I, is coming. He is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Man, this is a great picture of a repentant person. Humility, right? He's willing to take the last seat. You can see it there. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And listen to the language once again. His winnowing fork, uh, think, think uh, you know, if you go into a barn, you're cleaning out a barn, you got the well, pitchfork, right? That's what we would call it. And you toss it up and the heavier stuff stays there, the lighter stuff falls down. That's the picture he's given, is in his hand. To clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff, that's all like the light stuff that's not real. It's not worth anything. He will burn with unquenchable fire. Oh, that's not the Messiah I was hoping for. No, but it's the one you need. And it's the one who is even more important. He tells us who he is. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. Jesus reveals who he is through his word, all right? Well, okay, he continues. His okay. winning for unquenchable fire. Okay. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And you might think that is good news. Oh, it's such good news! It's such good news because what he's saying is he's coming to baptize you in fire and Holy Spirit, meaning he's going to do the miracle of the heart that I'm talking about that you can't do. He's going to do it. Fire burns up all the impurities, and you scoop them off, and all you're left with is what is real. Who's gonna do that? The Holy Spirit's gonna do that. Not a dip into Jordan. Not a dip, not another religious thing. This is real. It's 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 the prophecy of Ezekiel. He's gonna rip out the heart of stone, he's gonna give you a heart of flesh that's gonna desire God. This is time. It's time, Israel, and that time is now, and he's coming. All right. You'll notice these last two verses, but Herod Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. We're not talking about that at all. We'll come back to that because Luke comes back to that. All right. What's he saying? There's going to come a time when all the facades, all the fake religion, all the fake repentance will be revealed. All the dross is going to come to the top. You're going to see it all. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's so easy to fool pastors and other Christians and people with our culture with some behavioral modification for a love for Jesus. But can I just tell you right now, you cannot fool God. He sees. He sees perfectly. The point is clear. John's pointing away from himself to the superiority of Jesus to the superiority of Jesus' ministry, to the superiority of his baptism. John's baptism is of water. It's an external thing that hopefully reveals an internal reality. But, but Jesus's, it's an internal thing that will show itself externally. See the difference, right? So, so when this happens, there will be fruit. Let's just talk about that real briefly. John was a repentant man, and fruit of repentance was evidence in his life. What was that fruit? Number one, he was a servant. He was devoted to the Lord. He was glad to lay down his life in glad submission. He was bold. He did not fear man. He did not fear man's approval of him. He feared the Lord. So that's another fruit we see. He was humble. He made much of Jesus, not much of himself. It had been real easy to turn everything back to him, but he pointed away. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He points away. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, is that all the fruit of repentance? No. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, on and on and on. Do you want to boil it all down? comes down to love of God and love of others, defined by the Bible, not culture. You want to know if I'm living a repentant life? Do you love God? Do you treasure Jesus? And do you love others that look different than you? Do you love the smelly people of the world? Do you even have smelly people in your life? You might be one of them if not, Right? and it's still working straight up do you love people that don't look like you do you even have people in your life that don't look like you if not you may be just staying clear of people and guess what Jesus never stayed clear of those folks he went right to them so repent 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 okay some comfort and clarity as we finish up I really want to drive home the fact that it's not the quality of your repentance that saves us. That's works. I mean, seriously, you need to listen real carefully. I know it's like, oh, I'm tired. Wake up. It's not the quality of your repentance that saves you. It's the quality of your Savior. It's the quality of your Savior, right? See, true, genuine, real repentance, like all good things, is a gift from God. If you've ever, if you've repented you didn't do that. Well, I kind of did that. You didn't do that. He gave you the grace, the desire to to turn to the Lord. You would never turn to the King Jesus if he had not put it in your heart, a desire to love him, because your heart only hated him. Passively or actively, you wanted nothing to do with God, and God had to do a miracle in your heart to say, I want him. I want him. I love him. If your heart's ever said I love Jesus and it was real, not like I told oh I love Jesus, I asked him in my heart. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I love him. Oh God, he saved a sinner like me. I love him. A miracle happened in your heart. And and, and you did repent. You're like, well, I don't remember doing all these ritual things. It's not a ritual thing, it's like this. Faith and repentance is like a gunshot. Which happened first, the sound or the anvil hitting the bullet? It's, it's just like this. It's like two sides of one coin. Faith and repentance. Oh, I love him. You've already repented. You didn't even know it. already Because you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I repented because, man, I yelled at my kids yesterday. I know. I know. You did. doesn't mean you haven't repented. You might not have. The question is, do you love Jesus you love Jesus? And if you have, man, you'll turn from those things. Why? Because love is what draws repentance out. Love's what draws repentance out. See, we're not saved because we have a perfect repentance, but because we are weak, needy, and helpless. Therefore, we cast ourselves upon a perfect Savior who then washes us clean. <laughs> See, if you love Jesus, you're for- you're forgiven. Your sins are washed clean. You have no more before the Lord. As far as the east is to the west, they're gone. You're as white as snow. You are as perfect and as holy as Jesus Christ in the courtroom of heaven. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but do. Forget it, who cares? Holy, righteous, forgiven, pardoned, empowered, clean. Clean. And his delight's upon you. I want you to see this in in one more text. when We're almost done. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. You can turn there with me, or you can listen along, but you should note it so you can go back and read it. John's talking to the church. He says, this is the message we have heard from him, from Christ, and we now proclaim it to you. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus, right, While we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Oh, come on, John. That's a little rough, huh? But if we walk in the light as Jesus' is light, then we have fellowship with one another. Notice he says one another. He doesn't say fellowship with Jesus. That's implied because you're part of his body, but we're connected with Jesus. And then look at this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from what? Most of our sins. Uh, My translation doesn't say that either. All, All. All of my sins. Past, present, and the ones I'm going to do today and tomorrow and until the day I die or until Jesus returns. All my sins. All my sins. He says, for if we say we have no sin, he's talking to the church, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Man, you ever been around some folks who don't sin? Me neither, but I've been around some who think they don't. But boy, they're fun. If we confess our sins, he, notice this, do not miss this part. He, Jesus, is faithful and just. It's a picture of the cross. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Jesus a liar and his word is not in us. See, the worst thing about religion is you have to pretend that you've arrived. Look at me. You haven't arrived. But guess what? In the courtroom of heaven, you've arrived. So now work out that as you continue to walk with God. See, real repentance comes not simply by understanding the grossness of sin, but it comes from understanding the greatness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's real repentance because it's a change in relationship, right? In other words, the more we see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the more we will see sin as something to weep over, weep over, not celebrate in, not be like, hey, all my sins are forgiven. If you think like that, you either are not saved or you do not understand the grace of God. I don't know which one because here repentance is less about feeling bad over behavior and more about feeling awe and delight towards Jesus. And the more I look at Jesus, the more I see I don't measure up. Thankfully, Jesus measured up for me. Oh, I love him. And the more you keep your eyes on him, the more you behold him, the more you become like him. Don't make repentance another religious thing. So let's get real right now. Let's land the plane. The more glimpses we see of Jesus, the more we realize we are not as loving towards God or others as we say we think we are. And instead of being crushed by our failures to measure up, to love, and to do all these things, we look to the one who was crushed in our place. Quit looking at what you do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, it's not Nike, just do something. It's, It's finished. Jesus did it. Will you trust him? That's the gospel. We don't repent to get God to love us. We understand that God loves us, therefore we repent. And if you get that right, boy, the rest of the things just start to fit. But if you get that wrong, you will be the most prideful or despairing person anyone's ever come in contact with. So, Pay attention to these last words, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue on. The power of the gospel comes in two waves. I heard this from Tim Keller, and I'll tell you what. It was really helpful for me at a stage of my life when I was just trying to work out what I even understood the gospel to be. He said, the gospel comes in two waves. I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared to believe. Have you ever felt that? I hope. I hope. But then quickly, here's what follows. You ready? I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared to believe. Oh, for every time you look at your shortcomings and your sin, you better look 10 times to the one who's washed them all away. (laughs) Listen, he loves you. Ready? Not because you're lovable. Not because you're lovable. His grace makes you lovable. He loved you while you were a weak, ungodly sinner. Christ died for us. What did we offer? Really nothing except the need to be saved. Just We just were needy. And guess what? He met all your needs. The question becomes then, will you trust him? It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's that good news that then transforms us to be more like Christ. And if you're like, man, I don't know if I picked that all up. Keep coming because, man, this sermon is going to get preached over and over throughout Luke. Because guess what Jesus is going to continue to do? Pull back the curtain and show you examples after examples of what that looks like. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who came and lived the perfect life we could never live. Who, who willingly went to the cross, stretched out his arms in a great act of love for his father and love for those who would trust and believe in him and willingly drank the wrath of God down to the last drop so that we would not have to, but we could just drink from the fountain of grace and be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, thank you for, for the magnificent love that you have displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that because he is always will be perfect, the grave could not hold him. So he triumphantly rose from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he now mediates. He sits between God the Father, sinful humanity, and he mediates a relationship. So it is a change of relationship. And the way forward is repentance and faith. And so, Father, I ask right now, today would be day of repentance for anyone who has never trusted in you. Help them see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help their hearts, their eyes, their minds to desire him. And may they turn from trying to live their own lives their own way and submit gladly embrace the love of God, have a change of relationship that will lead to a change of heart, that will lead to a change of behavior, but it's not that, it's first and foremost everything you've done for us. Jesus, you are preeminent. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. And we ask that you would magnify yourself in and through us for your glory and that you'd be more famous in Greensburg each day as we seek to honor you. In Christ's beautiful name we ask this. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the city exists of magnified Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply."